plan to uh, plant this church here at Redemption, our commitment was, and still is, to preach the whole counsel of God. And um, by God's grace, he allowed us to do that. And by God's grace, we are committed to do that, even when passages that we come to uh, begin to make us uncomfortable. And that's what the Word of God does. It makes us uncomfortable um, in our lives, in our sin. Um, it also encourages us and admonishes us. And this is one of those sermons that will make us uncomfortable. Um, it will make us uncomfortable because we see the reality of it in our world today. And so we can understand the, the necessity of it. Um, but in the same way, it makes us uncomfortable because a lot of the pulpits don't preach sermons like this. The pastors uh, oftentimes pick and choose the easier texts and stay away from the more difficult, alarming, uh, culturally uneasy texts because of the consequences and the ramifications. And so let me just be uh, very clear this afternoon that um, I stand here today to proclaim the Word of God to you very truthfully um, with grace and love. Um, because this is what our church and our world needs to hear. And so I hope that you are encouraged today, that you are challenged, and that God's Spirit would do a work in all of us as we consider the words from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Brandon read that for us earlier, and just to kind of catch us up, I want us to uh, look at part two of our travel through these verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, entitled, um, God's Kingdom and Our Inheritance. And we focused last week on specifically those two words. What does it mean to belong to God's kingdom and to inherit God's kingdom? And I uh, spent a whole sermon helping us understand what it meant to uh, to, to be a part of the, the sovereign rule and reign over God in this whole world, but be particularly redeemed and belonging to the kingdom of God, as I called it, the redeemed kingdom. Because we know that God rules and reigns over all, and so in one sense, all of God's world and His creation is a part of His kingdom, but there is an unregenerate and unrighteous uh, side of that kingdom, as you might call it, or a, a part of that kingdom. We belong as the church to the redeemed kingdom. And so therefore, when we are transformed and, and born again through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, when we believe, we are transformed and changed and brought into that kingdom. Or as Paul says, we inherit that kingdom. And that's important for us to understand because inheritance is about love. Inheritance is about a relationship that we have with our Creator. And so if you're here today and, and you belong to the church, not, not the, the visible church, but the invisible church, what I mean by that is you can belong to a body of believers and be lost. You can belong to a, a church on the membership roles, but not truly belong to the invisible church because Christ has not really regenerated and changed your heart. That, is very, that was very much true in my own life as a young man. And it's very much true among a lot of people across this world. 
And we challenge you as, as people, as our friends, to always evaluate yourself and ask yourself, am I a part of the true church, one who has been changed by the power of the gospel? And Paul is uh, challenging the Corinthians because they have allowed sin to dwell in their midst. And in these very verses in our study today, Paul is laying forth the reality that some in the church in Corinth were not belonging to the kingdom. They did not and had not inherited the kingdom of God. And he gives us a list of the reasons why their lifestyle dictated that they did not belong to the kingdom. That this list in verses 9 through 11 are very much the characteristics of not belonging to the kingdom. And that we're going to apply those to the church as uh, evidences of those who do belong to the kingdom. You'll see that list in verse 9. I'll read it again. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, church. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such, he says, were some of you, not all of you, but some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Now we've looked and we've seen that Paul is saying, look, Corinthians, you have people dwelling in your midst that are not just attending your church. These are people who profess the name of Jesus Christ. And they are living in blatant sin. Such gross, immoral sin that we look out in chapter 5 that Paul now revisits in chapter 6. That will be our subject matter today. Because he wants them to understand what it truly means to be transformed and changed. To be those who have inherited the kingdom of God. So that we might rejoice and be glad. Or we might fall down in repentance and realizing that we have truly not been regenerate. Therefore, we are not heirs of the redemptive kingdom. So last week we looked at identifying the inheritance of the kingdom. And today we're going to look at identifying the heirs of the redemptive kingdom. Now this list that Paul gives us in uh, verses 9 and 10, he gives us 10 different uh, unrighteous qualifications or characteristics of people who do not belong to the kingdom. Now these are not people who have uh, reviled one time in their life, who have fallen into a, a, a sexual temptation, and therefore um, he's calling them out. These are people who he uses in, in, the, in the, the language of continual action, habitual sin, a, a lifestyle of these sins. And today, we're going to look at five of those in this list as we try to identify the heirs of the redemptive kingdom. The first five in the list, I'll just go ahead and tell you because you're going to be very, it's going to be made very clear to you. The first five in this list that he mentions in verse 9 are all related to sexual sin. Okay? They're all related to sexual sin, and we're going to look at that. And then the second list refers more to uh, outward sin like material possessions and 
such we'll deal with next week. But this list is given to church to warn the church. Warn the church as we consider who dwells among us. Who do we fellowship with? Who are we uh, coming together as believers in Jesus Christ and allowing sin to live within them? In chapter 5, we saw a man literally having sexual relations with his uh, mother-in-law and the church in Corinth was allowing such gross sin in their midst. And so he's warning the church and, and admonishing the church to stand firm against all sin and strive for holiness. So we're going to look at, again, verses 9 today. And I want to break down for you what these words mean in the sense of how they characterize the unrighteous. Like I said, it's going to get uncomfortable, but it's going to challenge us as God's people to dive deep into these words, to understand the effects of these things on the culture and on our church so that we might live holy, so that the Spirit might do a great work in us and challenge us Perhaps that we might be those who have fallen into such a trap. The first word he gives us is fornication. Now I would say that this word in the Greek, pornea, is, is the, it's the summary word for these first five uh, lists of sins that we're going to cover today in verse 9. It's the, it's the cumulative of these things. And we learned uh, a few weeks ago in our study that the Greek culture had begun to use the word pornea, which is where we get pornography from. They had used it in a very specific way, the Greek culture did, particularly related to prostitution. Now that prostitution happened in their religious activities as much as in day-to-day -day life. It was very common for prostitution to occur in the Greeks and even in the Romans. But as the Hellenistic Jews, the Jews who had lived in a Roman and Greek culture, they had become to, uh, they had been Hellenized, as it's called. They had uh, been so um, infiltrated by this uh, Hellenistic and Greek thought that they began to use and, 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 and have uh, their own uh, more broader definition of pornea. And so in, in the text here today, Paul is speaking very broadly and saying that fornicators are people who commit sexual sin outside of the marriage bond. Any sexual sin. It's a broad term. And it's an introductory word to summarize the lists, the following four lists uh, of sins that we will talk about today. And we need to be reminded that this temptation to pornea. This temptation is, it's all through our world today. And we have to be reminded that as people in the church, we are called to be set apart from such things because Christ has set us apart. He has set us apart. He has transformed and changed us. And so in other words, as I read last week in 1 Peter chapter 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If you are truly belonging to the redemptive kingdom, the Lord Jesus Christ 
called you out of darkness into marvelous light and has set you apart as holy. And therefore, we have no reason whatsoever to be involved in sin, even though this is our struggle. And so sin in our life that dwells within us should be an irritant to those who are regenerate. It should cause us to be uncomfortable like a rock in a shoe of a marathon runner. Constantly an agitant, constantly an irritant as we go about our day-to-day -day life. But we know that the more we live with the rock in our shoe, the more we live with the sin in our lives, the more we get comfortable with it. And it becomes a habit. And it becomes a lifestyle. And the Bible tells us, as Adam read in 1 John, that if we continue to practice sin, the truth is not in us. That we are lost and we need Christ. And so Peter wants us to understand that, that regeneration is the point in which we are transformed. The road has now divided and we are traveling the path of regeneration, of holiness, of sanctification, of being adopted by Christ in His kingdom. And in that regeneration, we understand then the way in which God speaks and reveals Himself, the way He guides our lives. And in one particular way that we understand that in regenerated hearts is the way in which God purposed His created order. We know that God created marriage for all of creation, all humanity. And in this marriage between a man and a woman, not a man and a man or a woman and a woman, but a man and a woman alone. And he says this in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his woman or his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now we understand if you've been to a, a, a faithful marriage ceremony lately and the, the pastor stood up before the couple and they, they, they exposited the word well and they described marriage well, then you understand that being one flesh is not just joining two lives together. It's not just joining two checking accounts together or, or two homes. That's part of it. But that includes... The union that a man and a woman have sexually, intimately, and that it's a glorious union that God designed in His created order for joy and happiness and satisfaction. And so when we allow pornea in our lives, we are distorting the created order of God. We are challenging it in rebellion and saying, although you have created it this way, God, just as Adam and Eve, I'm going to go a different direction, which is why God calls sexual sin an abomination. Because it goes against His created order and defies His name. So pornea or fornication in your Bible, pornea is the Greek word, fornicators is most likely the, the uh, translation for you or the sexually immoral Again, just a broad term. Let's look at the second one, idolatry. Idolatry. This question plagues the mind of some as they read this list. Why did Paul put idolatry in this first list of five things in which he's speaking about sexual sin and this pornea? 
Well, the reason why is because Paul is very intentional. He's very intentional with describing to the Corinthians exactly what sexual sin is. Sexual sin in the lives of all people outside the bonds of marriage is idolatry. It is a way in which man has fashioned a God, a substitute God, where we might worship it instead of our Creator. Therefore, when we journey outside the marriage relationship for sexual intimacy or sexual gratification, we are not submitting to God's reign over our lives, but instead we are worshiping and gratifying a false God, an idol. And what is that idol? It's our body. We have made our bodies in this culture and culture across the world. We have made our bodies an idol. We are so desperate to seek and gratify the very things in which we lust after and see with our eyes. We're like a kid throwing a tantrum in a toy store at Christmas. All that we see, we desire, and we stop at nothing to get it. And this, is, this includes not just sexual sin. This includes overindulgence in things like food, recreation, material possessions, or sexual immorality. And Paul understands that. He understands that sexual sin originates in an idolatrous worship of the body and ourselves. Look at the bottom of verse of chapter 6. He's making this point, and look at verse 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you are from God, or whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify, therefore glorify God in your body. Paul understood this, this idea, that the very body itself is a, a way in which we worship, substituting the Creator for the creation. Hold your place in 1 Corinthians. I want you to be very familiar with this passage. If you go to our church, you're familiar with it because I read from it quite often. Romans chapter 1. In a culture where this type of sermon is uh, critiqued and skeptics rise up, those critics of this type of passage and this type of sermon often try, often try to avoid Romans chapter 1, verses 18, because it seems so very clear to us what Paul is saying about immorality and sexual sin. But notice how he starts in verses 21. He's talking about the unrighteous who will inherit the wrath of God. And he says, for they, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of footed animals, four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So there we see that Paul is showing us that the, the very nature of sin is to create idols of the heart. And we fashion idols in different ways. It doesn't just have to be our bodies. 
It could be our careers. It could be our children, our family. All these things that we thrust our time and our resources into in such a way that we are glorifying and finding identity in those things and not in God himself and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And folks, that is idol worship in every way. No, we don't go to a separate temple. No, we don't have little figurines sitting on our dashboard or maybe a bobblehead or two. But, but we don't have these things that we worship and, and adore like the Romans and the Greeks did. But we by all means have fashioned these idols. And they're idols of our heart, of our checkbook, of our time and resources. And we must be clear that any God that, or any false God that steps in the way of the worship of God, the true God, the creator of all things, that is an abomination. And therefore, unbelievers who worship the body as an idol, as a substitute for the worship of God, we can see this as a consuming truth in our culture. Our culture is consumed with the body in such a way where physical strength or our physical stature is of the utmost importance. Now listen, I know what it doesn't look like if I go to the gym. I work out to try to stay fit and healthy. But it's not hard to fall into an obsession so that the look of my body is my identity. And the, every muscle is crafted and shaped. And then I'll just crack that muscle and wear baggy clothes. I crack that muscle and I post it all over social media for you to gawk it all and all over. Wow, look at that tricep. I want my tricep to look like that. I need to spend all my time making my triceps look like his triceps. Trust me, no one's saying that about me. But I tell my kids all the time, Instagram is the window to the soul. What we put on our pages, on our social media, for the world to see is a representation of what is in our heart. It's just a different kind of window. Because the body is an idol. And in sexual sin, we have uh, such a perversion in the world that there is a, a, a constant railroad train uh, roaring down the tracks of immorality and sexual perversion. And all it is seeking to do is gratify the lusts of our flesh, our sinful flesh. Because we have created the body as an idol. But we as the church need to be reminded that in regenerated worship, that we are called to give God glory alone. That he gave us these bodies, but these bodies should be used to glorify him. And let me just say, that glorification with our bodies includes good health, church. It includes being healthy. I by no means am against going to the gym and exercising because I think, to be honest with you, there are some overweight preachers in the world that are, that are hypocrites for speaking about holiness and not being faithful in what they put in their bodies and how they exercise. And so we need to understand that God has called us to live in holiness and live 
holiness means that our worship is directed to the Lord and the Lord alone. And when we understand that sexual sin is a form of idolatry, then we can be challenged in the way in which we might be idolizing our own body. What plans do you make to serve your body? What plans do you make to gratify its desires? Do you serve your body or does your body serve you? Have your looks or your strength or your mind become such an idol in your heart? Do you gratify, gratify the lust of your flesh instead of seeking to honor Christ with your body above all things? So Paul includes pornea, the fornication. He includes idolatry as a foundational truth of sexual sin. And now he goes to adultery. Adultery, the sexual immorality of the, the bond of marriage. Paul very much um, teaches on sexual immorality and brings adultery to our understanding clearly. Speaking of those most particularly where in chapter 5 this man was having a relationship intimately with his mother-in-law, not his wife, his mother-in-law. We assume that his father had deceased and therefore he thought that he could have some free reign, some um, permission to do such things. And Paul is disgusted with the church for not only knowing that this man is in their church professing Christ, but he's disgusted with the church for allowing him to continue to fellowship with this church instead of calling him out on his own sin. And I can't imagine, or I can't imagine, because the culture today is so clearly okay with adultery, that adultery with one man and uh, one married spouse is not enough anymore. Now there's multiple married spouses that commit adultery. At least the adultery that we think about, the outward adultery. You can easily find videos and documentation where men have multiple wives, not just in the Mormon church. But Jesus has an important point for us in understanding adultery in, in the book of, uh, in the Gospels, where he teaches us that adultery actually starts in the heart. That as we think about adultery, we must first understand that adultery starts with lust in our heart. See, this is what the Jews had done, the religious leaders. They had begun to teach that the, as the, the Ten Commandments taught, do not commit adultery. You're taking the, the, the wife of, of someone else that, that belongs to them, and you're having intimacy and sexual relations with them. But Jesus wants to bring to the point that adultery starts first in our heart as we lust over those things. These religious leaders weren't attuned to their own physical or their, their excuse me, their mental lust. But instead, only in the engagement and the practice of outward adultery. So Jesus redefines that for us. And in describing adultery, he says, First, be aware that pornea, 
The sexual morality starts with us lusting in our heart and in our mind. And we need no statistics or examples of how prevalent this is in our culture. We must understand that from every direction, we are seeing examples of adultery. We are seeing adultery celebrated. That all pornea is celebrated. And therefore, we must be aware of where it begins in us. We must acknowledge that just as social media and entertainment has redefined what true beauty is in our bodies, so this medium of entertainment distorts a healthy marital intimacy. And students, you need to listen to me because many of you are not married yet and you don't understand the repercussions of what these things, these images and these videos and these Hallmark movies that promote sexual morality and, and um, adultery, what they are doing and how they are reconstructing your mind and your expectations for your future marriage. We've allowed the entertainment industry to reconstruct sex away so that they've shaped it in the same way that we think aliens would look if they visited this earth. Now, I don't know if you believe in aliens. I don't believe in aliens, okay? We can have that discussion later. But if aliens came down and they were blobs of goo, we would all be surprised because the movie industry and TVs have made them look like humanoids, right? They have redefined for us and said, this is what aliens look like. They have big eyes and they have large craniums and they have tiny little legs or thin legs and arms. And, they're, and they're, the UFOs, are all, they all look like dishes on top of each other flying around. And in the same way, church, we have this concept of sexual uh, uh, practice in our culture. And our young people are being fashioned and molded to say, this is normal. This is what you should do. This is how sex works. This is how it's supposed to be enjoyed and with whom it's supposed to be enjoyed. Anything else they would say is irregular and unsatisfying. And I cannot stress to you enough that these are the lies of Satan as he tries over and over again to distort what God has made. So what is a regenerated sexual relationship? A regenerated sexual relationship with persons in the church who have been saved, who have joined together in holy matrimony before God and witnesses. God's called us to a holy fulfillment of sexual intimacy in the marriage union. God desires, church, for your marriages to fulfill its purposes in all aspects that glorify God, including a sexual relationship in the bonds of marriage. There's a book that I would encourage you to read. It's called Intimate Allies by Tipper Longman III. He writes this. It is God's intention that sexual intimacy through trial and error occur in a bonded marriage relationship where inexperience and awkwardness have the safety net of covenant, love, and commitment. 
But church, when we allow the world to fashion and mold our idea of sex, we begin to fail to see how distorted it's made our relationship with our spouse, how unsatisfying that might lead in sexual intimacy. God's people must be for sexy, uh, sex, healthy sexual relationships in the confine of marriage so that we might celebrate marriage and celebrate all that God has gifted us in that union. This is exactly what the faithfulness of Solomon in teaching his son in Proverbs chapter 5. I used to teach this passage to my students constantly because sexual immorality was always pounding down their door. Very clearly, Solomon says, drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed, streams of water in the streets, let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving wife and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. Church, let me encourage you. If you're married couples here today, if you are seeking to be married one day, with all the love and pastoral concern I can share with you this afternoon, let me encourage you to work hard or seek to work hard in the future for intimacy in your marriage. Do not, do not give up on the struggle. It is necessary. It is a gift from God for you to enjoy, and it is a means of worshiping Him. Do not allow the sin of laziness and poor planning and distraction and unreconciled conflict and even your age stop you from pursuing what God has designed for your enjoyment. This is how we counteract a sin-cursed world that promotes adultery. We as a church stand strong and say, this is how God has designed marriage. This is what glorifies Christ. We will teach our children. We will disciple them. We will pass these truths on. And we as our as parents and grandparents will be committed. We will be committed to not only practice such things, but teach our children how important they are in the realm of the marriage bond where two or a man and a woman have covenanted before God. So we have fornicators, we have idolaters, we have adulterers. The last two I'm going to lump together. I'm lumping them together because in your, particularly your translation, it might just be one phrase. It's two Greek words separated by a comma in my translation, the New American Standard. The two words are translated effeminate and homosexuals. Effeminate and homosexuals. If you have the ESV, your phrase just simply says, men who practice homosexuality. If you have the new King James, it says homosexual and sodomites. 
If you have the NIV, it says male prostitutes and homosexuals. Now, the reason why the translators have differed on this way is because Paul uses in the translation for effeminate, in my translation, he uses a very particular word, a very unique word, a word he's never used before. And the word literally means something that is soft. Something that is soft. And by the context, because we allow the context to, to dictate where, how we translate these words, the context showing us that sexual sin is a subject matter. And because Paul states this softness, I think the New American Standard is, is probably the most accurate of the translations. Because it's referring to men who are effeminate. And if you follow this word in the classical Greek language, you see that it often referred to men in particularly prostituting ways who were the soft partner in a prostituted um, situation. In the Roman culture, in the Greek culture, this often was young boys who were being violated and, and paid sexually by older men. So they were, they were playing the soft role, or as the New, as the, the New American Standard says, the effeminate role. And so it's very natural then to merge these together in translations and say men who practice homosexuality because it would include those, particularly men who might have been prostitutes or, or just effeminate in general, who are practicing homosexuality. But the two words can be separated and still refer to the sin of homosexuals. And of course, this is by all means considered hate speech in our day today by even preaching against such material. But we must understand the clarity, the clarity and the truthfulness of God's word on these subject matters, no matter how much the culture tries to do linguistic gymnastics around God condemning homosexual practices. Paul has to address this because homosexual practices were so prevalent in his world today, or in that day. In John MacArthur's commentary in 1 Corinthians, he makes the comment that it was, it's, quote, likely that 14 of the first 15 Roman emperors were homosexuals. Nero, who reigned close to the time Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, had a boy named Sporus, whom he castrated in order for that boy to become the emperor's wife, in addition to his natural wife. And after Nero died, that boy, who had been abused and mutilated, who, had, who was forced to serve as his wife, was now passed on to Nero's successor, Otho, to be used in the same way. Now you can imagine that a regenerated church is dealing with this issue. Men that had once been involved in homosexual practice now regenerated and belonging to the church, struggling with the memories of and the, the sexual practices of the time before. And therefore, Paul has to address these things 
because they're so culturally relevant and still culturally relevant by the power of the Holy Spirit for our churches today. Paul wants us to see the sin and the to the Lord. That's the why. That's why the Lord addresses such sin in, in all of the, of the Bible, most particularly and chiefly in Leviticus chapter eighteen, which reads, "You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It it is an abomination." There's no clear way to say that, church. But this is not the first time that God has spoken against homosexuality. Because when he defines marriage, he is speaking against homosexuality. Because when he defines something, he says, this is the pattern and the design that I've ordained, that anything counter to that is an abomination to God's holiness. When we try to twist and change what God has done, we are guilty of such sin. And this LGBTQ culture that surrounds us today is taking every avenue possible to do this. Proponents of homosexuality in the transgender movement want to deny the truth of the Bible. They want to deny God's hatred towards homosexual sin just as much as he hates all sin. They want to dismember God's design of gender roles at birth. They want to confuse his teachings on a natural, the natural relationships between men and women. And church, we must stand firm against such abominations as the church. We must not give into the cultural pressure by accepting LGBTQ people into our church membership because these people are living in blatant sin. And we can't isolate them and say that only their sin is unworthy to church membership. Any sin that you are living in habitually makes you unworthy to be a member of God's body of Christ. Because the prerequisite for church membership is a continual practice of faith and repentance in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this word, these words... Reflect a practice, a practice of dishonoring the marriage bond where the lust of the flesh burns for someone of the same sex and it goes against what God has deserved, designed, and purpose for man and woman. And we know this, it's very clear, but as Paul says back in Romans chapter 1, that the very practice of unrighteousness is suppressing the truth. And therefore, the suppressing of the truth, particularly in homosexual sin, is not only theological suppression, but it's biological suppression. They not only suppress the theological truth that God designed marriage between a man and a woman alone in the bond of marriage as the only acceptable relationship that pleases God, but they also suppress the biological truth. That's what Paul says in very prophetic, Holy Spirit-driven words, that they are going against what is unnatural. 
Look at verse 26 of Romans chapter 1 again if you kept your finger there or your bookmark. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And the same also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in, this, in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Now the LGBTQ community will make a lot of different rationalizations about this passage. They're saying, oh, well, this is about violent homosexuality. This is about sexual abuse. This is not about consenting adults in the homosexual world that are committed to one another in a relationship. This is their, this is their rationalization. This is their gymnastics that they do with the text. Paul is saying being together is unnatural, both theologically and biologically. God did not make you that way. He didn't design the science to work that way. Therefore, what have they had to do? They've had to change the science. They've had to alter their own bodies to try and bring their bodies to the point of their belief and their practice. And that mutilation, church, if you read stories and, and watch videos of people who have come out of these surgeries, you will see that these people are physically suffering in such mutilation. That it has caused them so much pain, all for a belief system that goes against what God had created. It takes a lot more effort to go against the way God created things than to support them. I could, I could speak for two hours on this subject, so let me just throw another resource out to you. <laughs> Kevin Young has an amazing book, What Does the Bible Say About Homosexuality? Not only does he lay out a healthy biblical view of sexuality, but he helps you as, as God's people be equipped to answer the objections that come your way. Objections such as, and I quote, the Bible hardly mentions homosexuality. Or it's not that kind of sexuality. Or you're on the wrong side of history. Or God's a God of love. These are all just some of the objections that he mentions and, and covers so that we might be equipped. More than I can equip you in one sermon here this afternoon. So as Paul defines homosexuality, it draws us then to affirm the way in which God has designed us. To move forward with sexual intimacy in the bond of marriage alone between a man and a woman, to encourage that and support that and to teach that. That we are in such a battle with our students here in the culture that's bombarding them with images and ideas trying to, to rouse up doubt and rouse up confusion, and it's a burden. I, I'm a parent of these children. I'm a former student pastor who, at this current moment, have at least five former students in my ministry that are practicing homosexuals. It's devastating. I have a gay uncle 
other gay members of friends and family that that we need to reach with the gospel. So I'm by no means advocating that we turn our backs toward them, that we don't show love to them, but we cannot be accepting of what they are doing and consider it something that honors God. As believers, we have to stand firm in what the Bible teaches, what He calls an abomination. We are resolute to promote And stand firm on prohibiting such abominations in our own lives. Teaching our children the beauty of God's design for marriage. The glory of sexual intimacy in our marriage relationship. And even keep our children accountable in their relationships. Parents, don't by any means give your kids too much credit. Your children have no business spending time with young people of the opposite sex, one-on-one, thinking that they're going to sit around and read the Bible together. That's not wise. The Bible teaches us, and you know, the own cravings, the own the, the passions that you had as a teenager, you know what's going to happen. And to allow such unparented and neglected time alone with our children and their friends, one-on-one of the opposite sex, it's neglect. That's all it is. And in the same way, church, we are neglecting our children and our parenting when we stick a device in front of them and we have no protection of what they're going to see. Because it's coming across there as well. There's a video I would encourage you to watch, parents. It's called Childhood 2.0. It's put out by a technology and a company called Bark Technologies. They are set out to protect children from sexual predators, from pornography and the things on the internet. And they did a video that every parent of a young person and teenager should watch. And they interview children about what's going on in schools and what's coming across on text messages and the sexual perversion that's surrounding them. This isn't even a Christian organization. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to blow your mind of what's happening to your kids. And how quick that social media account opens up and a sexual intruder is, is contacting your children, asking for pictures and relationships over the internet. There's danger out there. And in this video, I love this, this, this illustration. He's... The, the guy that's speaking says that there is so much accessibility to those things on devices today. It's like setting Playboy magazines on your coffee table for everybody to see. That's how easy it is. And the growing trend is no longer sexuality outside the bonds of marriage between a boy and a girl. It's between two males and two females. And I'm sorry, church, but this is the way, the day that we live in. And we have to guard our minds and hearts and protect our children because there are, it is coming across from all different directions. Just this past week, my son Peter, who was 10 years old, came to us and said, this book from the library is talking about so-and-so has two moms and two dads. Now, my son is 10 years old, and he has the maturity 
because we have tried to teach him these things to read that, be ashamed and embarrassed about it, and tell us about it so that he would no longer read such things. This is how we have to protect our kids. And we must strive as God's church to be loving as we share truth. There's no accomplishment in the mission of the gospel and the glory of Christ to stand firm on marriage, sexual intimacy in marriage, heterosexual relationships in marriage, if we don't stand firm on that truth with love. We can call people courageously to repentance, but in the same way, love them and support them, walk with them and help them understand what Christ has taught. You can build a relationship with someone with the purpose of sharing the gospel with them of some different sexual orientation if you are mature enough to do so. If you have been equipped and can move forward in gospel conversations and focus so that they might see and be rescued by God's grace. This must be our vision, church. If you're living in sexual sin of any kind, things that you've looked at even today, relationships that you're involved in, church, you realize that adultery is not just physical, it's also digital, it's also emotional. When we've committed ourselves to some relationship outside of our own spouse for the sake of gratification, for the sake of encouragement, to meet some absence that is existing in our current marriage, we could be guilty of adultery, even emotionally. The word God, and as your pastor, I call you to repentance. And if you profess Jesus as Lord, then you would understand his desire for holiness in your life. My prayer is that you would seek to honor Him. That you would seek to affirm the way in which God designed the marriage relationship. That you would affirm the, the sense of purity if you are not yet married. And commit to That you would, as we had a time of confession earlier, that you would confess your sins before God and trust in the work of Jesus Christ to rid you of unrighteousness. I can't speak for every Christian here today, but many of us are resting in the gospel and no longer shamed for sexual sin that we committed before we were in Christ. You know why? Because we understand the gospel. We understand the words of David who wrote in Psalm 51, Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. When we believe in Jesus and we trust in the power of the resurrection, we should not feel ashamed because we know that he bore the guilt and the shame for our sexual sin on the cross. And we rejoice in 
we sad that we did such idiotic things? Yes. Can we blame someone else? No. Were they our decisions? Yes. Does Jesus forgive us when we confess in repentance and believe in faith that He alone can save and cleanse us? Absolutely. And so I call you today to faith and repentance in Jesus Christ alone. If you trust in Him, if you believe in His Word, then you will belong to the kingdom of God. You will inherit such a kingdom. If you believe today, then He will usher you into that kingdom spiritually today. Let's pray. Father, we pray for Your grace and mercy in this time. God, as we are surrounded even in this building tonight with a culture that promotes sexual immorality, this pornea all around us. We know and understand, Father, this dishonors you. It dishonors the glory. It dishonors the creation that you have made. As people who you have saved, this type of sin, all sin, has no business in our lives. And so thank you for writing such things, inspiring Paul to write such truths, inspiring Moses to write such truths, and David, so that we might see what is sinful and wrong, and we might be aware and convicted in our own hearts and lives by the Holy Spirit of what you detest in us. And we thank you for the free offer of grace, the unconditional call of God to believe and trust in Jesus. We thank you for saving those who put their faith and trust in you. Help us, Father, as believers to fight the temptations and the battles every day that come across our computer screens, that tempt our children in schools and in their sports teams and all the different avenues of social media. Where Satan is trying to get a foothold in the lives of our children in such a way to indoctrinate them in a perverted sexual ideology. God, help us to be protectors of ourselves and of our children so that they may believe and trust in you and may practice holiness as we seek to practice holiness. And Father, for here, people here today or who are listening online who are trapped in sexual sin, God, I pray, Lord, I pray that you would rescue them. I pray by your grace that they would believe and trust in you and turn from such sin today so that today would be their day of salvation. God, we beg and plead that you would do such a great work. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stay in the